0: Hot boys and pyromancers knights and tavern wenches and welcome back to another still smug book talk section this week covering season six episode eight entitled no one it's me your host sir duncan the fearsome lord of castle sterling and bearer of the valyrian steel greatsword dark warrior and this week as ever we have some fun a song of ice and fire book crossover material to cover If you haven't read the book series from which Game of Thrones is based, and don't want to be spoiled with material that could range through all five books that have been released thus far, this is your chance to skip this bonus episode and avoid irreversible spoiler damage. Book perspective coverage begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And we're off. This week's first book crossover is the appearance of Milk of the Poppy, when Arya is given a glass by Lady Crane, the actress. This scene doesn't happen in the books, and we're further along in the TV show with Arya's plotline than we are in the books right now, but I felt like I should mention Milk of the Poppy showing up on the TV show because it's pretty rare on the show, and in the books it's kind of a regular staple of everyday life in Westeros. The mountain's on Milk of the Poppy all the time, everybody's getting Milk of the Poppy for some kind of ailment or another, (laughs) so I thought it deserved a little mention here at the start. If I remember correctly, the mountain actually quaffs Milk of the Poppy like ale, and that is hardcore. And the next book crossover that we have is The Return of the Brotherhood Without Banners. This time they are seen interacting with the Hound, which is awesome. Book readers have been speculating how the Hound would behave when he returned, assuming that he was the gravedigger from the Quiet Isle. And here he does not disappoint. He is slashing and hacking with his axe, cutting out people's genitals, smashing their heads, cutting them right off. Oh, man. The hound is vicious and ruthless, and he is not afraid of anything. He had a great line here where he asks, the bald guy, where's the other guy with the yellow cloak? You know, the one who helped you destroy the, uh, the sept and kill all those people. And the guy, uh, what does he say? He says, fuck you. So the hound says, oh, that those are your last words? Really? You could do better than that. So the, g- the guy goes, uh, cunt. <laughs> and the hound responds, you're shit at dying you know that which is hilarious because you would know the hound has seen dozens and dozens of people die as a direct result of his sword axe hands whatever implement of destruction he has at the moment so if he tells you you're shit at dying it's probably true he's, he's probably heard lots more cool last words than that try harder bruh so the hound finally catches up with the guy in the yellow cloak Book readers will be happy to know that this is confirmed as Lem Lemoncloak, and sad to know that Lem Lemoncloak is dead pretty much immediately. This is a cool character from the books that you guys will remember, and I had brought up speculation last week about how he could have been Rhaegar's squire, I believe it was, um, the Knight of Skulls and Kisses, who may know Jon Snow's true heritage. But, unfortunately, it doesn't look like he'll be sharing that knowledge with anybody at all in show canon as he is soon killed by the Hound. This is actually very interesting because the first guy we see from the Brotherhood that we recognize is Beric Dondarrion. And book readers know that in the books, Beric had given his life to breathe the fire of R'hllor into Lady Stoneheart, into Catelyn Stark to revive her from the dead, days after the Red Wedding when the Brotherhood stumbled upon her bloated corpse in the river by the twins. So the appearance of Beric leads me to believe that Lady Stoneheart may not be making a show appearance. You'd imagine at this point that she would be around and Barrack would be gone if events had played out the same way in the book, considering it's years at this point after the Red Wedding and Catelyn Stark would have been brought back just days after the fact. They kind of tricked us last week when we saw the Brotherhood Without Banners sort of behaving ruthlessly and in a different manner than we'd come to expect based on their appearances in season two when they first showed up. And uh, a lot of people had, a lot of book readers especially, had attributed this to a potential change of leadership, which would have occurred when Beric died and Lady Catelyn was brought back to life. Interestingly, as you guys all know, Lady Catelyn is more of a spirit of vengeance at that point and um, pretty much focuses her return on killing Freys and getting judgment for these bad guys who perpetrated the red wedding murdering her her son her son's wife her son's wife's unborn baby and their armies and direwolf so sadly at this point it looks like lady stoneheart will not be making an appearance but the silver lining is that beric Dondarrion is still around and that guy is a badass super cool to see him back on the screen and i am happy to see the return of the band or the I was calling the Band of Brothers, the Brotherhood Without Banners. Now, interestingly, we find out some information about what the Brotherhood with Banners are up to at this point that may set the tone for the books as well. And hopefully the storyline in the books will include the Hound like it is in the show. But basically, you know, despite their the first time they met and the way they didn't get along, the band the Brotherhood Without Banners are trying to sort of recruit the Hound at this point. You know, they're saying we're part of something larger than just ourselves. And um, we, we need big, big badasses like you, essentially, to come join us in our fight. There's a cold wind rising in the north. You know, good and bad, young and old, the things we're fighting will destroy them all. You can still help a lot more than you've harmed. Now, if you remember in my still smug exclusive Book Talk bonus episode that was released last week, I mentioned a few different ways that people had speculated about Jon Snow being revived up at the Wall. And if the Brotherhood Without Banners on the show are going to be headed north to fight in the battle against the Whites and White Walkers, that could indicate that in the books they're going to be heading north as well. Except, what's the main difference in the books? Instead of Beric leading them, they still have Lady Stoneheart leading them in the books. So, if they're going north, maybe bringing the Hound with them, that opens up the door for... Catelyn Stark or Lady Stoneheart to potentially sacrifice her own life to bring back John, who has been recently murdered at the Wall. I would find this to be a very compelling storyline, re- like simultaneously a redemption for Lady Catelyn for treating John so badly after she realizes who he really is, the true heir to the Iron Throne after Rhaegar and Ares. And um, it would be a satisfying conclusion to the Lady Stoneheart arc, I believe resurrecting Jon Snow as, as Azor high and ending Catelyn Stark once and for all and based on the way that Sandor is reacting at the end of the scene there before it cuts I would not be surprised if he ends up joining the Brotherhood without banners which would be awesome it'd be great to see him fighting side by side with those guys and can you imagine the Hound taking on a White Walker or a group of like 10 whites with a flaming sword or a you know some some type of epic weapon (laughs) and not only that going north may offer the hound opportunities beyond a fresh start fighting for good and a clean slate sansa stark is north and the hound has had previous interactions with sansa to quite an extent book readers are familiar with the people who ship sansa and the hound as a couple Potential pair and they've had quite a number of romantic interactions in the past that would lead this to be a possibility sandor the hound this ruthless guy has always seemed to have a soft spot for sansa stark from the first time they met shortly after he saved her from a mob of potential rapists when joffrey's uh, group was assaulted on the streets of king's landing when Sansa was being stripped by Joffrey and the and the the King's guard, Tyrion showed up, put an end to it, and it was the hound that gave her his cloak to cover her naked self up aside from that the hound has bared his soul to Sansa repeatedly. There was that time when he was walking her back from the king's tourney or one of the tournaments, and he told her the story of how his brother burned his face, and after the Battle of Blackwater Bay which resulted in Sandor becoming an even more broken man after being exposed to the flames of wildfire, which left him traumatized and, you know, brought up those memories from being burned as a child, just ripping open those scars, all all brand new and fresh. Where did he end up? He ended up waiting in Sansa Stark's bedchambers. And when she showed up, he offered to rescue her and sweep her away out of the city and bring her to safety. She turned him down... But he ended she ended up singing him a little song, and um he went on his way, leaving his bloody king'sguard cloak behind for her. This is actually a fascinating scene which contains material that people may not have realized on a simple read through. It seems that in that scene, Sansa may have actually cast a spell on Sandor inadvertently, which she did by singing him that prayer for once a prayer in the name of seven seems to have actually come true to some degree in a song of ice and fire now if you go by the gravedigger theory it seems that sandor's rage may have actually been calmed to some degree following his interaction with sansa in that scene he ended up being let go by the brotherhood without banners who deemed that Rallor had more use for him he survived his encounter with Arya after being bitten by biter and now he seems to have found peace at the quiet aisle with the brotherhood of monks that are uh, stationed there. And even on the show, he's not quite as venom filled as he was previously. He even said on the, on the episode that there was a day where I would have killed all seven of you brothers, you know, to, to get to these three hanging on by the ropes there. Um, Thoris of Mir had a funny reply where he said, you're getting old Sandor, (laughs) which was pretty cool. But I want to go into a little bit more detail about this this prayer that Sansa said to San, to Sandor and the effects that it may have had. Considering Sandor may be on his way north to meet up with Sansa again, I think this is pretty significant. And so my first reading tonight will be the passage from Sansa's bed chambers. So, here we go. The blood masked the worst of his scars, but his eyes were white and wide and terrifying. The burnt corner of his mouth twitched and twitched again. Sansa could smell him, a stink of sweat and sour wine and stale vomit, and over it all the reek of blood, blood, blood. I could keep you safe, he rasped. They're all afraid of me. No one would hurt you again, or I'd kill them. He yanked her closer, and for a moment, she thought he meant to kiss her. He was too strong to fight. She closed her eyes, wanting it to be over, but nothing happened. "'Still can't bear to look, can you?' she heard him say. He gave her arm a hard wrench, pulling her around and shoving her down onto the bed. "'I'll have that song. Florian and Jonquil, you said.' His dagger was out, poised at her throat. "'Sing, little bird. Sing for your little life.' Her throat was dry and tight with fear. Every song she had ever known had fled from her mind." Please don't kill me, she wanted to scream. Please don't. She could feel him twisting the point, pushing it into her throat, and she almost closed her eyes again, but then she remembered. It was not the song of Florian and Jonquil, but it was a song. Her voice sounded small and thin and tremulous in her ears. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows, let them know a better day. Gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury, teach us all a kinder way. She had forgotten the other verses. When her voice trailed off, she feared he might kill her. But after a moment, the hound took the blade from her throat, never speaking. Some instinct made her lift her hand and cup his cheek with her fingers. The room was too dark for her to see him. But she could feel the stickiness of the blood And a wetness that was not blood Little bird He said once more His voice raw and harsh as steel on stone Then he rose from the bed Sansa heard cloth ripping Followed by the softer sound of retreating footsteps When she crawled out of bed Long moments later she was alone She found his cloak on the floor Twisted up tight white wool stained by blood and fire so as you can see there's some elements of romance here occurring between sansa and the hound at various different occasions i definitely think it will be great to see them back together on screen and can't wait to see what happens between these two okay let's move along next book crossover that we have isn't quite a crossover but it's more of a situation that can be analyzed from a book perspective that may relate to a book crossover and this is Varys leaving Marine on a secret mission to find friends for Daenerys now where could Varys be going he could be going to the Iron Fleet but they're already heading to him some people speculate that he may be going to Dorne which could be a substitute for the Quentin Martell plot that we got in the books this would be a way for Daenerys to get the dornish on her side and continue to build her army for her invasion of the seven kingdoms in the books the plan was for her to land in dorn if relations had gone well with quentin and start the takeover from there so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out on the show if she can ally with the dornish at this point the Sand Snakes which wouldn't be surprising considering they're a group of strong women who would only be happy to see another strong woman in a position of power it'll be uh you know it'll be interesting to see how that plays out i could see it happening next we jump back over to king's landing where the mountain finally gets some action book readers have been anticipating this for years knowing that robert strong is a total badass but not having seen him do anything yet so, it was awesome to see him doing something again and ripping a dude's head off, just straight off his shoulders. It was also really cool to see how that, that, um, one of those sparrows came up with, like, a pointed warhammer with four big spikes on it. It's actually, it looks like a, like a stupid little simple weapon, but that's actually a pretty good weapon, it seems, for puncturing plate armor as it left four holes in, in the mountain's armor and probably would have, severely injured a regular human but as you could see the mountain was unfazed by this quadruple puncture and proceeded to lift this up guy up by the neck and then rip his head off awesome to see can't wait to see more of this book readers rejoice next we have an interesting event that occurs in the books under very different circumstances and this is the reuniting of brienne and jamie as you know, Brienne was captured by Lady Stoneheart and her crew, the band, with, the Brotherhood Without Banners, and basically was given two options, die at the end of a rope, or bring Jaime Lannister for his punishment at the end of a rope. And at the end of the chapter, right as Brienne is about to be hung and Podrick is dangling by his neck, Brienne lets out a cry and says one word. The chapter ends, but... We end up coming face-to-face with Brienne again in a future Jamie chapter when she rides up on Jamie in the Riverlands and they ride off together. We still don't know what happens with that situation in the books, but it's safe to say that nothing good is going to come of that, or at least it doesn't seem that way. I really hope that Jamie and Brienne both get out unscathed from that because they're both great characters and Jamie is in the process of his redemption. Would just be a shame to see him cut down before that happens but here we go on the tv show and they're reunited under entirely different circumstances instead of being sent by catelyn stark this time brienne is sent by her daughter sansa and she is not sent to find jamie she's sent to river run to recruit the blackfish and the tully army but she stumbles upon jamie and uses it to her advantage in this situation Interestingly, we find out in this scene that Jamie never expected Bran to find Sansa or so he says. He assumed that she was already dead at that point. They go on to get in a little bit of an argument and Jamie says, "You know, we shouldn't argue about politics." These two have a great dynamic and you can tell they both really care about each other and you never see Jamie being this compassionate with with anybody really. So, it's it's just heartbreaking to see them together but on different sides of this battle Brian holds out oathkeeper and offers it back to jamie saying that the mission that he gave it to her for was completed and that she's returning it to him and jamie of course tells her that oathkeeper belongs to her and that it will always be hers this is a very emotional moment for me at least i assume that other people were hit hard by this but i've heard speculation since then that this could be more of a symbolic encounter as well that brienne trying to give oathkeeper back to jamie may signify a turning point in jamie's arc representing a choice for jamie to choose keeping oaths and and being an honorable person or breaking oaths and taking a turn away from redemption towards a negative arc in the in like the direction that he would be going with Cersei. I hope that this isn't symbolic of that, and that Jaime does end up, you know, going on a more redemptive path. But shortly after that, he is threatening to fling babies over River Run with a trebuchet. So we'll see how that goes. But I'll get more into that in a little bit. So this was nice, as people have been long anticipating the reconnection of Jamie and Brienne, but it really only gets more heartbreaking from here. Brienne stops on her way out of Jamie's tent and basically says, Listen, if I can't convince the Blackfish to ride north and you're forced to attack, honor compels me to fight on the side of Sansa's kin. This means that I'll be fighting against you and you can see a sort of twitch in Jamie's face at this moment where his his you know his strong exterior facade cracks and you can see he's really torn by this really brutal scene he tells her you know i understand let's let's hope it doesn't come to that and i really hope it doesn't come to that cuz i like these characters a lot and it would just be so sad to see them torn apart or to see brand kill jamie or something like that. It would just be horrible. So I really hope that nothing like that ends up happening. I know Tormund Spain is in the picture now, who likes Brienne, which seems to have been added to the story to make up for the fact that Jamie is still go- going gaga over Cersei, which is very different in the books at this point. But I still like Jamie and Brienne, and I would be happy if something positive happened with, with them. Like if Brienne ended up being a positive influence to, on Jamie, whereas Cersei is a negative influence, and Jamie ends up choosing good over evil um, because of the influence that Bri- Brienne had on him. Jamie may have turned down Oathkeeper in this instance, but I'm hoping that, that that does not also mean that he's chosen a path of dishonor. He's still got a lot that he can do in terms of of good in this world, and hopefully, soon he'll have some opportunities to really do it. But, of course, that's cast into doubt almost immediately as he goes to meet with Edmure Tully. This is another great crossover from the books that many of you will remember, his famous trebuchet or trebuchet speech that he gives to Edmure, threatening the the life of his child if he doesn't decide to surrender River Run to the Lannister forces. I really liked this scene on the show, and it had some interesting dialogue that was show-unique but um, also brought in some really good references from the books. I, f- I thought it was pretty potent. You know, Edmure asks Jamie, like, really, I want to know, how do you live with yourself? Everyone has to, you know, believe that they're decent, don't we, When, when to sleep at night. How do you tell yourself you're decent after everything you've that you've done? And you, again, you can see Jamie's strong facade crack for a moment as he's torn, you know, between... Good and evil between honor and dishonor. Remembering his horrible past and considering the options for his future. What what will he do from here? Will he choose a path of honor? Will he choose a path of destruction and violence? Jamie brings up Catelyn, Edmure's sister, and compares her to Cersei. Interestingly, you know they both were strong females who would do anything. To protect their babies, including, he says, start wars, burn cities to ash, and free their worst enemies. As you know, Catelyn freed her worst enemy, Jamie, who pushed her son from a window on the off chance that this oathbreaker, Kingslayer, may, just may, choose honor for once and return her daughters to her, Arya and Sansa were supposedly being held captive in King's Landing. Unfortunately, Jamie couldn't do that, but he did the best he could, which included outfitting Brienne for the task and sending her on the mission. I thought it was a great little um, line that he threw in there also. He says, you know, they'll do anything to protect their babies, start wars, burn cities to ash, free their worst enemies. The things we do for love, he said, which, as you remember, was... The exact sentence he used before he threw Bran out the window or pushed him out the window back in the pilot episode. Keen observers may have been noticing that Jamie was angling at something by bringing up, you know, the things that people will do to save their children. He mentions to Edmure that he has a son whom he hasn't seen yet and a wife as well who he hasn't seen since his wedding. He says, you know, you two should be together. But that's only going to happen if you if you surrender river run i'm gonna i'm gonna let you go and you're gonna go back to the blackfish and you're gonna enter that castle and you're gonna surrender it otherwise i'm gonna send for your wife send for your kid and i'm gonna send your son flying over the walls of river run with a trebuchet if you refuse to surrender the castle and one thing I found really cool about this scene is that as Jamie is delivering this monologue to Edmure, threatening his child if he refuses to give up his castle, his his face is shrouded half in darkness, half perfectly lit, half perfectly dark. And to me, this represents the dichotomy of Jamie's his 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 mental position. He's in a position where he has to choose between light and dark. He can be honorable or dishonorable. And he's caught right in the middle. So it's a good thing that Edmure decides to obey and surrender Riverrun, because I don't think Jamie wants to have to go down that dark path. At his soul, I think, at his core, I think he's a good guy, and he wants to be honorable and do the right thing. And he doesn't like being in this type of position, I don't think. And Edmure, you know, makes the decision that that he thinks is right, which is to try to save his son try to save his wife and try to reunite with them by submitting to the Lannister demands essentially he crosses over the bridge and immediately demands that the forces stand down and that they open the gates for the Lannisters now book readers recognize this scenario from the books this is pretty much exactly what happens Edmure is released as a hostage into River Run and the castle is surrendered but in this process in the books the blackfish disappears he swims out through the gates under the gates and down the river in the cover of darkness and escapes and his his location is still unknown in the books at this point so I imagine that book readers were shocked and disappointed as well when he refused to get on that boat with Brienne of Tarth and Podrick Payne after waiting for so long for the blackfish to come back and having so much potential for how he could affect the story in the books and the show. I think a lot of people were probably crushed that he didn't even get a death on screen in this episode. We were just told he's dead and didn't get to see him fight. Didn't get to see any of that. I mean, from the show perspective, it's understandable because the actor is in his late seventies, I believe. So it wouldn't really make sense to have him doing a lot, like a, a few days worth of shooting high-intensity action scenes. But it would have been nice to see the Blackfish do a little bit more before he ended up being killed off. And next, I would like to read another passage from the book. This time, I'll be reading Jamie's Trebuchet passage. So, just to set the scene, he is sending for Edmure Tully current captive of the phrase and he is planning on bringing him across the bridge to river run to free him in exchange for certain terms so without any further ado jamie waved his golden hand sir lyle bring him Edmure tully had collapsed face down on the scaffold when sir illan's blade sheared the rope in two a foot of hemp still dangled from the noose about his neck. Strongbore grabbed the end of it and pulled him to his feet. "'A fish on a leash,' he said, chortling. "'There's a sight I never saw before.' The phrase stepped aside to let them pass. A crowd had gathered below the scaffold, including a dozen camp followers in various states of disarray. Jamie noticed one man holding a wood harp. "'You, singer, come with me.' The man doffed his hat. "'As my lord commands.' No one said a word as they walked back to the ferry with Sir Ryman's singer trailing after them. But as they shoved off from the river bank and made for the south side of the tumblestone, Edmure Tully grabbed Jamie by the arm. Why? A Lannister pays his debts, he thought, and you're the only coin that's left to me. Consider it a wedding gift. Edmure stared at him with wary eyes. Uh, a wedding gift. I'm told your wife is pretty. "'She'd have to be for you to bed her while your sister and your king were being murdered.' "'I never knew,' Edmure licked his crackling lips. "'There were fiddlers outside the bedchamber. "'And Lady Rosalind was distracting you. "'She... they made her do it, Lord Walder and the rest. "'Rosalind never wanted. "'She... she wept, but I thought it was... "'The sight of your rampant manhood? "'Aye, that would make any woman weep, I'm sure. "'She's carrying my child.' "'No,' Jamie thought. "'That's your death she has growing in her belly.' "'Back at his pavilion, he dismissed Strongbore and Sir Illyn, but not the singer. "'I may have need of the song shortly,' he told the man. "Lou, heat some bathwater for my guest. "'Pia, find some him some clean clothing. "'Nothing with lions on it, if you please. Peck, wine for Lord Tully. "'Are you hungry, my lord?' "'Edmure nodded, but his eyes were still suspicious.' Jamie settled on a stool while Tully had his bath. The filth came off in gray clouds. Once you've eaten, my men will escort you to River Run. What happens after that is up to you. What do you mean? Your uncle is an old man. Valiant, yes. But the best part of his life is done. He has no bride to grieve for him, no children to defend. A good death is all the blackfish can hope for. But you have years remaining, Edmure, and you are the rightful lord of House Tully, not him. Your uncle serves at your pleasure. The fate of Riverrun is in your hands. Edmure stared. The fate of Riverrun? Yield the castle and no one dies. Your small folk may go in peace or stay to serve Lord Emmon. Sir Brynden will be allowed to take the black, along with as many of the garrison as choose to join him. "'You as well, if the wall appeals to you. "'Or you may go to Casterly Rock as my captive "'and enjoy all the comforts and courtesy "'that befits a hostage of your rank. "'I'll send your wife to join you, if you like. "'If her child is a boy, "'he will serve House Lannister as a page and a squire, "'and when he earns his knighthood "'will bestow some lands upon him. "'Should Rosalind give you a daughter, "'I'll see her well dowered when she's old enough to wed.' "'You yourself may even be granted parole once the war is done. "'All you need to do is yield the castle.' "'Edmure raised his hands from the tub "'and watched the water run between his fingers. "'And if I will not yield, must you make me say the words?' Pia was standing by the flap of the tent "'with her arms full of clothes. "'His squires were listening as well, and the singer. "'Let them hear,' Jamie thought. "'Let the world hear. It makes no matter.' He forced himself to smile. You've seen our numbers, Edmure. You've seen the ladders, the towers, the trebuchets, the rams. If I speak the command, my cuz will bridge your moat and break your gate. Hundreds will die, most of them your own. Your former bannermen will make up the first wave of attackers. So you'll start your day by killing the fathers and brothers of the men who died for you at the Twins. The second wave will be Frey's. I have no lack of those. My westermen will follow when your archers are short of arrows and your knights are so weary they can hardly lift their blades. When the castle falls, all those inside will be put to the sword. Your herds will be butchered. Your godswood will be felled. Your keeps and towers will burn. I'll pull your walls down and divert the tumble stone over the ruins. By the time I'm done, no man will ever know that a castle once stood here. Jamie got to his feet Your wife may whelp before that You'll want your child, I expect I'll send him to you when he's born With a trebuchet Silence followed his speech Edmure sat in his bath Pia clutched the clothing to her breasts The singer tightened a string on his harp Little Lou hollowed out a loaf of stale bread to make a trencher Pretending that he had not heard With a trebuchet, Jamie thought If his aunt had been there, would she still say Tyrion was Tywin's son? Edmure Tully finally found his voice. "'I could climb out of this tub and kill you where you stand, Kingslayer.' "'You could try,' Jamie waited. When Edmure made no move to rise, he said, "'I'll leave you to enjoy your food. "'Singer, play for our guest whilst he eats. "'You know the song, I trust.' And that song would be the Reigns of Castamere, I'd be willing to bet. So as you can see, these scenes play out fairly differently in the books and the show, but the same message gets across. Surrender River Run, or I will catapult your baby at River Run. And you can tell the internal struggle in Jamie is present in this scene as he's hesitant to say the words out loud with people in listening range. This isn't the person that Jamie wants to be. He doesn't want to kill kids. He doesn't want to do all this. You can tell in his heart he wants to be an honorable person. He killed King Ares in the first place out of honor to prevent Ares from slaughtering King's Landing as a whole and burning the city and all the people in it. What a tough position Jamie's in here. But while we're on the topic of burning the city as a whole and all the people in it, this brings us to Kyburn and Cersei. Another little book crossover we have here. If you make the connection to what Kyburn is hinting at, basically after this scene where trial by combat is outlawed, which is also another really interesting twist that book readers may not have been expecting, Kyburn says to Cersei that those old rumors that you have told me about, I've investigated them. I've had my little birds look into them. When she asks about if they were true... He says, yes, they were more than true. There's more here than you would have expected. So what are they talking about? Do you guys have any ideas? I can think of one old rumor that may be at play here. And that would be the rumor of Mad Ares having stashed wildfire all over the city. If you recall, in the episode after Hodor held the door... As Bran was being dragged away by Mira, there was a flash, a sequence of flashes of memories from the weirwood tree, from memories from the past, visions from the future all mingled together. We saw the Mad King yelling, burn them all. We saw Jon Snow killing a white walker. We saw Ned asking, where's Lyanna? We saw pyromancers filling jars with wildfire. And we saw an explosion of wildfire from some type of chamber. Now, this didn't happen in the past because Jaime killed the pyromancer before he could, the head pyromancer, before he could tell the other pyromancers to light the wildfire. So this may have been a vision from the future. And there's been all kinds of little hints throughout this series of Cersei being willing to burn the city. There was a scene where she was talking to Tommen a few years ago and she said, I would burn this whole city to the ground before I'd let anything happen to you Jamie said in this episode remember what I mentioned a few minutes ago that they would start wars they would burn cities to ash they would release their worst enemies to save their children and there's that scene from the books you might remember where after Tyrion kills Tywin Cersei has the Tower of the Hand burned to the ground with wildfire to try to Get Tyrion out of it because she's convinced that he's holed up inside of it, just lurking and waiting for a moment to strike either against her or against Tommen or Jamie or anybody. But sh- the point is, she's burning the tower and just gazing up in awe and joy as the green flames lick through the windows and the doors, and the tower begins to melt and fall. And Jamie's kind of sitting there watching her, like, who is this person you, you look like the mad king just standing in awe watching the, the the wildfire burn and he was drawing comparisons between cersei and mad king Ares at this moment in the books so in this situation on the show given the fact that we've seen flashes of of wildfire exploding given the fact that jamie says in this episode that cersei and catlin would have burned cities to ash to protect their children and given these old rumors that kyburn is mentioning i think it's likely that cersei has been investigating these old caches of wildfire supposedly left by the mad king Ares, and that she may be plotting to use them in some type of attack this attack could be a targeted attack on the, the sept of balor to try to wipe out the spare the high sparrow and his his underlings all the uh, the sparrows throughout the city she could be you know wanting to get revenge on the whole city for jeering at her and throwing shit at her and spitting on her and throwing semen and pee and all this nasty stuff at her and calling her names and flashing their dicks at her and all this stuff when she was doing her shame walk for all we know cersei could be planning to finish what the mad king started and burn king's landing to the ground including everybody in it now this would put jamie in a very awkward position just imagine this i mean jamie had sacrificed his honor and his reputation as you know he's one of the most promising knights the most talented knights in all of westeros and all of the planetos and he gave everything up potentially in that moment when he decided to kill king Ares to prevent him from doing this exact thing so how would he react if cersei ended up doing it the person who he loves the most would end up betraying him in the most awful way imaginable by completing the mission that he sacrificed his reputation to prevent in the first place if i mean she could do it to try to save tommen before he's Oh, you know, put under too much influence by the High Sparrow. Or if something happens and the, the prophecy that Maggie the Frog told Cersei ends up coming true and Tommen dies, it could be a retaliation. She might say, oh, I have nothing left to live for. And she might try to set off all that wildfire just to punish all those people who mistreated her, who let this happen to her and to her son, to burn those... those worthless king landing small folk that laughed at her made fun of her and threw things at her when she was walking naked through the city and to eradicate all those dirty sparrows coming in here and taking control of the city so if that happens then what about the last part of maggie the frog's prophecy what about the Valencar? the little brother who would wrap his hands around Cersei's throat and squeeze the life out of her. She thought this whole time that it would be Tyrion. But let's think of some other little brothers. Jaime is technically her little brother as well. He's, what, two minutes younger than Cersei, who came out first from the womb? If Cersei did this and set fire to King's Landing with wildfire, I would not see it out of the realm of possibility that Jaime kills her in retaliation maybe strangling her with a golden hand the way that Tyrion's golden hand necklace strangled shay who he loved but killed jamie could mirror that by murdering cersei who he loves with his golden hand the show likes to do things in twos weddings deaths all kinds of mirroring events so this would not be out of the realm of possibility and would be fascinating to see unfold You know, the person who Cersei is most scared of for the longest time here, Tyrion, may not be the person she needed to fear this whole time at all. And her actions may have created the self-fulfilling prophecy that um, was originally predicted by Maggie the Frog, the Woods Witch. So this is a big, big freaking mess. And who knows what's going to happen I don't think the faith is going to end up killing Cersei. Something's going to happen before that, and it's going to be somebody who has more of a stake in the situation that ends up taking out Cersei. Because Cersei's not she's not going to make it to the end of this thing, to the this this song of ice and fire. There's no way. I'd be very surprised, but um, I mean, who knows? Does Jaime kill Cersei in the end? Is the Valonqar Jaime himself? who Cersei would never even think to fear. That would be an ironic twist of fate. And I mentioned it briefly, but it's worth mentioning quickly again that, yes, trial by combat has now been outlawed in Westeros as a whole. Now, this is interesting because I had suspected for a while that the High Sparrow would do something to undermine Cersei's trial by combat. I didn't know if it would be to disqualify the mountain as a candidate because he is an undead abomination. That's kind of what I had been leaning towards that he would be removed from the Kings guard and locked up or, you know, they would try to do this at least, but turns out like the high Sparrow has gone a step further. Oh, I also had, you know, speculated or I'd heard speculation um, that the high Sparrow would, instead of doing a normal trial by combat, he would initiate a trial by trial of by seven like um in the Duncan egg novels where instead of a traditional trial by combat it's more of an old school multi man combat like a team combat that involves seven representatives for each side of the uh, the quarrel the defendant and the plaintiff essentially so each each team consists of seven people who battle to the death and the survivors are the winner of the trial of seven So that would have been another interesting possibility, but that would have been big, you know, in terms of budget for the show. So looks like the high Sparrow has gone another way and convinced Tommen to outlaw trial by combat entirely. Interestingly, when Tommen said this in his proclamation, he said that after much consideration and prayer, the crown has decided to outlaw trial by combat. That seems to imply that it was his own decision But I don't think we can really trust Tommen to be making any decisions on his own. It seems like everything that he does is triggered by somebody else. So we can pretty much guarantee that this is the High Sparrows doing as well. But interesting development. And it'll be interesting to see how it turns out. Looks like there will not be any Clegane bull, at least not in the trial by combat. So holy shit. Revelations. Now there's one more thing worth mentioning as, um, as Brienne and pod escape from river run, Jamie's up on the battlements and he sees them rowing away and he waves his golden hand at them and they wave back. And I've heard speculation that this may be foreshadowing that one of those two in the boat, either Brienne or Podrick may end up being the end of Jamie and killing him. Um, I mean, this is speculated simply because he let them go and didn't try to stop them. And that means that that decision could end up biting him in the ass eventually. So let's be on the watch for that. I really hope that ja- that Brienne doesn't have to kill Jamie. I'd rather see them fuck than fight, like Bronn had talked about <laughs> in the episode. <laughs> that was pretty funny. But um, yeah. Yeah, I hope that doesn't happen. Don't kill him, Bran! So, that pretty much wraps up the book crossovers for Season 6, Episode 8, No One. And now I have a listener's question to go over with you guys. Bavo says on Facebook, Duncan, do you take requests? Your discussion of the Valyrian steel swords has me wondering where they are now, how they got there, and who has them. Like, what happened to Lightbringer? We know Ned Stark's got split into two would just love to know where they are as winter is coming and the Night King. So, let's talk a little bit about Valyrian steel and Lightbringer. So, Valyrian steel is a compound forged in the time of ancient Valyria. It's folded and folded like steel thousands of times and ends up with a dark rippling pattern across the steel... And overall, there may just be hundreds of Valyrian steel blades left in the entire planetos, with just a couple dozen remaining in Westeros, if I remember correctly. And let's see, I have a list here of Valyrian steel weapons that are known to exist or have existed in recent Westerosi history. We have Blackfire, the ancestral sword of House Targaryen once wielded by aegon the conqueror himself during the conquest and of the uh, seven kingdoms it was passed down generation by generation through the targaryen kings until i believe aegon the fourth aegon the unworthy gave it to a bastard son of his instead of his true born son because he for political reasons and the blade ended up being lost during the resulting blackfire rebellion which was started because of this occurrence giving the sword blackfire to a bastard son who then attempted to claim the kingship because he was the holder of the valyrian steel sword blackfire there's another valyrian steel dark long sword of house targaryen who was which was owned by Visenya Targaryen, one of the sisters of Aegon the Conqueror. It was known as Dark Sister. It was also lost during the Blackfyre Rebellion. There's, of course, Ice, Ned Stark's famous greatsword, passed down for generations and generations from House Stark. We have, yeah, that was turned into Oathkeeper and Widow's Wail. There's Longclaw, the ancestral sword of House Mormont, Brightroar, the ancestral sword of House Lannister, lost by King Tommen II Lannister, when on his expedition to Valyria, you know, hundreds of years ago. I believe Tyrion's uncle actually attempted to go back to Valyria to reclaim this sword and never returned, only adding credence to the concept that those who go back to ancient Valyria are lost in the fire and cannot return it's just a, not a safe place to travel there's also heart's bane which we saw a couple episodes ago which is the ancestral sword of house tully there's lady forlorn the ancestral sword of house Corbray, and there is the dagger wielded by the assassin who attempted to kill bran stark after he had survived his fall from the window Another blade that may or may not be included in this list would be Dawn, the ancestral sword of House Dane, which is thousands of years old and has been passed down through the generations to members of House Dane, which members, uh, you know, family members who are worthy of holding the title Sword of the Morning. Only Danes that are Sword of the Mornings are granted Dawn as their blade, which is a very noble title and is only given to those who really are exceptional warriors and exceptional exceptional knights. And that brings us to our theory of Dawn which may actually be the original lightbringer wielded by the last hero during the uh, the last long night. So this blade Dawn owned by House Dane is supposedly forged from the heart of a fallen star. That's important to remember. There are certain other things, including that, which make Don a likely candidate for being the original Lightbringer. So I'll read you a couple of little passages here about Lightbringer. Darkness lay over the world and a hero, Azora High, was chosen to fight against it. To fight the darkness, Azorah High needed to forge a hero's sword. He labored for 30 days and 30 nights until it was done. However, when he went to temper it in water, the sword broke. He was not one to give up easily, so he started over. The second time, he took 50 days and 50 nights to make the sword even better than the first. To attempt it this time, he captured a lion and drove the, ho- the sword into its heart. But once more the steel shattered. The third time, with a heavy heart, for he knew beforehand what he must do to finish the blade. He worked for a hundred days and nights until it was finished. This time he called for his wife, Nissa Nissa, and asked her to bare her breast. He drove his sword into her breast, her soul combining with the steel of the sword, creating Lightbringer. There are certain linguistic tells that it seem to indicate dawn, Potentially being related to the long night and potentially being Lightbringer. For instance, when light is brought at the end of the night, what is that called? It's called the dawn. So, Lightbringer may have been the sword used to bring the dawn. And at the end, when the light was there, the sword may have been renamed Dawn because it no longer needed to bring the light. The light had been brought. So, for some reason, the name may have been changed. Also, there's speculation that the wife of Azor Ahai, Nissa Nissa, may have been an ancient member of House Dane. In this way, if the blade of Lightbringer was, was um, tempered by being thrust through her heart, it would have been tempered by being forged from the heart of a falling, fallen star, because the sigil of Dane of house dane includes a falling star so if the sword was created by using a member of this house then it would have been made from a falling star you know because people from houses are often equated with their sigils starks are referred to as wolves lannisters are referred to as lions danes are referred to as stars so it is entirely possible that dawn may in fact be lightbringer and the sword of the morning interesting name as well the wielder of the blade dawn that may be a title for someone who is essentially a placeholder um, meant to protect dawn until it's needed again by the next azor high, so it could have been passed down through generation and generation being carried by these certain exceptional warriors known as the Sword of the Morning to protect this sword, which really would be, if it's Lightbringer, it would be the Sword of the Morning, the sword that brought the morning, brought the light, brought the dawn. And something else interesting about dawn, it's got a unique white blade that's unknown um, compared to any other sword in the Seven Kingdoms, People have, you know, taken the fallen star thing literally and thought that the blade might be forged from a piece of a star. But as we know, Lightbringer was famous as being a flaming sword. So it, I think it's possible that it could have been some type of Valyrian steel, maybe infused with dragon glass or something like that, and that the burning nature of the sword may have turned the steel white over years and years of being a flame which could have resulted in this unique anomalous white blade that we're told dawn has and um it's kind of interesting to note that if dawn is lightbringer and if the sword of the morning is basically a someone who protects this sword waiting for Azora High to be reborn and to reclaim this when it's needed? Is it just a coincidence that the last sword of the morning, Arthur Dane dies at the Tower of jo- uh, Tower of Joy as the potential new Azora High Jon Snow, is being born at that exact moment? And following that that Ned Stark had both of them in his possession, he left the Tower of Joy with Jon Snow and with Dawn if R plus L equals J is true so what are the odds of that the, the most recent sword of the morning dying as right as the new Azorah high is being born and and high is basically born alongside of Dawn as Ned brings Dawn back to the castle of the House Dane what's it called Evenfall or Starfall I think it is yeah, so that's an interesting coincidence that may, you know, be telling that Dawn could be the original Lightbringer. Other people have suggested that Lightbringer may be under Winterfell for some reason, that the castle may have been built there to mark the place where the Long Night fell, where Winter fell to the light. Um, that could mean something too. Who knows? There are so many possibilities. Um, we'll just have to wait and find out. But there's lots more information on Valyrian Steel out there. There's more theories about Lightbringer and about all this. I just don't have time to go into all of it right now without driving Jason and Mr. Blog completely out of their minds. So I should probably cut this bad boy short. And um, hopefully you are intrigued enough, listeners, to go do some more research on your own and find out as much as you can about this. I would be fascinated to hear any ideas you have relating to Valyrian Steel or as to Lightbringer, um where it may be, if it's if we've seen it already in the story, if it needs to be reforged, you know, any of that. So feel free to feel free to write in with any um questions or any information you guys may have. And uh that pretty much wraps this up. This has been season six, episode eight, no one coverage in the still smug book talk section of game of microphones i'm your host sir duncan the fearsome lord of castle sterling and bearer of the valyrian steel greatsword dark warrior and i hope you guys have a great week